0: When you get a virus, you get a fever. That's the human body raising its core temperature to kill the virus. Planet Earth works the same way. Global warming is the fever. Mankind is the virus. We're making our planet sick. A coal is our only hope. If we don't reduce our population ourselves, there's only one of two ways this can go. The host kills the virus, or the virus kills the host. Either way.
1: Mutually assured destruction. Today, any nuclear country or terrorist is capable of inflicting damage on a massive scale. With weapons of?
2: Environmental entropy. The polarized caps aren't waiting for us to decide if climate change is real. Rising coastal waters, intensifying
1: weather patterns, they're all punching. Our one-way ticket to... Dystopia. By definition, not perfect. Huxley's Brave New World. Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. Orwell's 1984. Once considered fiction, these futuristic novels are actually happening right now and they seem to be getting worse. Yes, Miss Newton! Can we fix it? Sorry? I get things are bad, but what are we doing to fix it? Have a good weekend, everybody! (laughs) This is Transmission 5 of the Cosmic Anthropology Broadcast System. We're calling this one Breaking down the Breakaway civilization. This is a uh, extended chat with Gordon from Runsu. It's uh, kind of a sequel to one we did last time, but this one's a lot more focused on the, guess what? Breakaway civilization. What's the Breakaway civilization? Keep listening. Ha! So it uh, we do the whole cultural investigation thing and talk about how culture actually informs reality. Um, But mostly using things like, uh, well, surprisingly, we start with uh, Jurassic World. Um, My original intent was to use Tomorrowland as a kind of framing story. Um, But we end up bouncing around between those two, drawing on a whole bunch of other things, you know, conspiracy theory, ufology, some of the main theorists, um, breaking down the terms. Gordon breaks down a whole bunch of stuff. This is a really good primer to the ideas that I am exploring in more depth, week by week-ish, at the Daily Grail. So this uh, basically serves as a compressed companion podcast. You read the 12,000 word essay so far, you want the podcast that goes into it in more depth. And probably spoilers where I'm going in the next two. So, tune in. Um, We start in media res, as they say, in conversation about the one of the um, secret space guys who I actually hadn't heard of. Channel click goes like this. <laughs> <laughs> I know the, um, the Mysterious Universe guys have done like epic chats a couple of
2: times. And um, Jay Dyer does as well, um, which it's quite cool. Like sort of three hours, sometimes in his car, um it's impressive
1: I don't know who that is
2: uh, he's worth looking into. He's kind of like this um sort of uh southern philosopher media analyst guy. he's quite good. he's going to be involved in the secret space program um conference as well, but um some of his stuff is uh, very uh, very intelligent analysis of um you know uh film texts and m k ultra history and all that
1: boom, straight into it
2: nice. Hi, Gordon. Hi, Mikey.
1: How
2: are you? Uh, I tell you what, I'm not that good. Um, I thought I was out of the man flu. It's just kind of concentrated in my head, and we ended up drinking more than expected last night just over dinner. So a bit of a splitting headache, but I have painkillers, nasal spray, coconut water, Kleenex, although they were beside the laptop. Anyway, uh, so I think I'm good to go.
1: Excellent. What we can do? I just watched. Have you seen um, the Perverts Guide to Ideology?
2: No, I haven't. You said that through
1: a couple of days ago. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Do you want me to watch that beforehand, <laughs> or no, can you describe it?
1: I'm used to um. It's 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 Zizek,
2: right? Oh, um, uh, Slavo Zizek or Zizek or whatever it is. Yeah.
1: So we can just yeah. Uh, the nose wipe. Oh wait,
2: no. Maybe I ha- is that is that the one where he um. I might have seen that one. It's a YouTube video. It's about 18 minutes
1: long. No, this is a full, full film. Okay. No, I haven't seen it yet. Which, if it's not online, it might magically make its way online. Isn't gotcha. Cool.
2: Possible? Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, so I, 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 as the internet might have realized by now, this thing I'm writing is your fault.
2: Well, I choose to take complete credit slash responsibility for that.
1: <laughs> so, you, what, did you watch Tomorrowland? Yes. So I'm just trying to work out where where we should start. Um, at the dawn of time? Or... Well,
2: we can start at the dawn of time. We can start with Tomorrowland. Um, I actually watched Jurassic World last night, and um, I hadn't really got around to seeing it um, beforehand. And uh, I was a huge fan of the first one. Like, it's probably the film that made me go to film school. It was fascinating to watch um, the difference 20 years later of of what... A, uh, a commercial or private project like that looks like in the early 90s to now, given the sort of military involvement in the back end. And, and it's fascinating to just sort of see how the world has changed if we're talking about breakaways, that even in something as seemingly innocuous as a theme park. Um, I, just speaking of Tomorrowland, it sort of reminded me of it because it's kind of making a comment on what's sitting in the back end of entertainment as an industry.
1: Wow, I kind of- You've seen it, right? No, I ha- no, I haven't. I
2: kind of okay. Oh well, I've, it's it's worth it. it what uh, it's actually a very like if you're a Jurassic Park nerd, it's quite a good piece of filmmaking because there's about a hundred specific visual references to the first film, at least a hundred, to the point where it's almost like uh, they did a some kind of combination of a mashup and a reboot of the first one, but now with kind of like um naval uh military black projects in the back end really cleverly done if you if you're looking at it in that direction
1: I did not expect that
2: neither, neither did I <laughs> I just expected some dinosaurs and people running around
1: yeah that's um so there's this thing I've been noticing where the films I expect to do well don't and the ones that don't do if you know what I mean so like yeah sure Jurassic World did I think one and a half billion, mostly in China.
2: Really, China is its yeah. biggest market. Yeah, cool. Yeah,
1: is this like targeting for China thing going on? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like I saw, have you seen Amer- it's American Ultra? Did that come out
2: over there? Uh, probably. I don't go to the cinema. Gordon doesn't get time for fun things like that. Um, I'm, I'm, yeah. I will. Pr- I, that being said, I, I've got this new picture house membership, so I might actually put that on the list. Um, Hanging out with a screenwriter friend on Wednesday, I'll see if we can't head in that direction because that's going to be uh, uh, one to pay attention to. What's fascinating is stuff that was this wild, swiveled-eyed, like conspiracy nonsense, is now so um, accepted that it's it's actually the it's not even the subtext of a film; it's the text of a film. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That, again, you see that journey with Jurassic Park, you look at the one from the early 90s, and and entertainment back then is this kind of big, it's sort of, I mean, Hammond is P.T. Barnum, and so he just essentially wants a theme park, Uh, and there's an innocuousness to um, private investment in things like genetics and then you look at the one that came out in 2015 or 2014 and uh, it is not innocuous like it's <laughs> not at all it's it's it could be I'm just sort of thinking in a very similar way to Tomorrowland as this Disneyland as metaphor for the entertainment industrial complex I mean Jurassic World they have wearables and cameras everywhere and there's you know military in the back end so it's all like that was there was a surprising bit because the first one was just kind of you know, um, very early nineties night vision goggles and um, poor descriptions of chaos mathematics. It was uh, um, oh it was just a fun, just a fun early nineties film. But yeah, it's, it's worth a look. I, if people haven't seen the first one for a while, maybe watch that first and then watch the second one because it, you're basically watching someone doing something really, really clever, um, which I didn't expect.
1: That's interesting. Because like what I found about Tomorrowland was they not sublimate, but sort of buried a lot of the. Okay, so this is kind of offhandedly mentioned that they're drinking soylent. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not that's not foregrounded at all, right? But that's like key to the whole California ideology, you know? Yeah. Bitcoin soylent, smash the state apart. <sighs> Exactly. And
2: yeah, so it's uh, and just this uh, extreme uh, allegedly meritocratic elitism of kind of just plucking the best people because th- that's just what happens.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Um, I wanna I wanna work our way to how much do you know about neo reactionaries?
2: Um, a bit. Yeah.
1: I wanna work our way to that, but not straight away.
2: Not start with it. So yeah, <laughs> fair
1: enough. Kind of, kind of
2: complex. Well, it is. It's um, it's it's a symptom, or oh, not a symptom. Uh, it's a reaction. It is. It is. Yeah, but it's one manifestation of uh, a kind of wider realization of the limitations of that uh, mid twentieth century participatory, allegedly meritocratic uh, state democracy process. Um, how I mean, I think it's, well, it has many failures, but I think it's its failure is the assumption that we know. We, everyone would agree that, that this kind of system doesn't work or doesn't match 2015, but I wouldn't go so far as to say, hence, we should do this. We should have kings and, um, you know, <laughs> um, that's where, so it's, it's kind of a, it's a school. I understand the reasons why it formed, but um, I don't go along with its, I guess, resulting recommendations or the beliefs that formed around that if that makes sense you know because it's pretty extreme it's and it's i think it's a it's um it reflects a very uh, specific view of history when they look back for precedent for certain cornerstones of uh, neo reaction you know <laughs> maybe yeah. not
1: yeah well it's you know it's it's the eurocentric worldview
2: Pretty much, it's uh, and it doesn't. I mean, say what you want about, especially in the last thirty years, the sort of um, academic muddling of difference. Uh, there, there's something. It doesn't mean that there. You can't sort of necessarily follow that to a sort of weird late nineteenth-century idea of superiority. So
1: let's. I'm trying to think of a way to. Okay. But to me, Tomorrowland was this thing that stuck in my head, right? It's been gnawing in my head since I watched it earlier in the year as this Disney breakaway civilization, right? Yeah. After having stumbled through your, like, Chardonnay? Archonology.
2: Arcanology, yep.
1: Arcanology series. And ha- having watched a little bit of the Secret Space videos, right? And then in the interim... Watching all of the Secret Space videos, right? So all the all the Catherine Austin Fitz and Joseph P. Farrell, and then and then watching Tomorrowland again and seeing it for what it really is. Mm-hmm. It,
2: yeah, I do. I um for me, I wonder if uh, there are certain films out there that sort of to borrow a phrase from Chris Knowles, Tell Tales out of school. I'm not sure if Tomorrowland is doing that as much as it is these ideas are just sort of in the air in hollywood and they've they went from being secrets to secrets whispered in writing rooms to now just well these things are happening and so they became um part of the story like uh, there's some clever as you say the soylent pieces in there and the sort of underground base uh, component which and especially it's, it's a small world which is a very globalist song is how you get into the underground base so there's some t- very deliberate signaling but i um usually when you have a telltales out of school film like say 2001 space odyssey um, and I, obviously it's unfair to compare kubrick to tomorrowland but usually you get a more well, I, I think you have a more coherent message coming out of it, because this one just seemed to be um, kind of like, oh, what's his name, kind of like Peter Thiel, like he just has these ideas and he thinks they're reality, he doesn't realize that um, they're not, <laughs> and uh, that, that there's sort of these confused bits where you have that technocratic elitism, and, and, and it's it's the reality of a of a privatized uh breakaway civilization rather than the exploration of it. Like it's just there as if this is this is normal or even good. And uh, it's almost skipped the point of saying, actually, this is where it came from and this is how it works. It's just kinda of there.
1: So there was a line in the um there was there's the book that bears no relation to the film, Tomorrowland, right? that you linked to a while ago. And yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. That, it's, um, uh, what's his name, Stephen something? The science writer guy who went some, was looking at that, all the near future tech yeah. and all that kind of stuff, yeah. And
1: he's basically the spokesperson for, not Tio, but the other guy, right? Um, the guy that's the X-Prize. Yes. And yeah, a but line that in that interview. There's an interview you linked to between him and um, one of those business guru guys.
2: Oh, James Altucher, yeah.
1: Sure. And in the interview, he says... Sanitation, you know, is important, but also, you know, you need a little bit of dirt to build the immune system. It's just this skipping logic. Do you, do you remember that line in the interview? Yeah, I do. And it's like, you know, they're going, well, you know, you need to build an infrastructure, but a little bit of dirt. Like they don't, they don't think through the implications of all this.
2: No, exactly. That and that's the the weird part. Yeah. Um. So Silicon Valley is one of the sort of, I would say, main areas where um the privatized breakaway tech is onboarding back from the shadows into the real world and um we're kind of experiencing that on a geopolitical basis now and i don't think it's going as well as they'd hoped um but so these ideas kind of emerge and they're they're in these people's heads and they don't realize (laughs) um they don't have the backstory of where that tech and philosophy came from over the last fifty years, and it's just oh well, this is the future now, and this is reality. And you go, guys, it's it's not. It's some sort of like previously Nazi, uh, full-blown techno-fascist madness.
1: Yes, yes, and they just drink the soil. Like yeah,
2: they do. I mean, it, this—it's herd behavior, obviously. I mean, you get out to Silicon Valley, there are these unbelievably rich. Um, accidental hyper fascist uh, people with you know mega yachts and and it's just this must be reality this must be where things are going this must be what the future looks like and uh, it's what a future looks like I suppose but um, it's I still with all of this stuff keep coming back to there are some um there are some first principles in error, um, particularly the stuff Peter Thiel's looking at. With uh, and I agree that sort of um, he's correct in investing in the physical rather than the digital is the next stage of, of technological development. But there are a whole bunch of first principle ideas that rely on uh, a scientific materialism that doesn't uh, is not going to match where the technology is going. We've already bumped up against the limitation of the model. Um, over the last 40 years. And um, to sort of double down on it, to double down on an exclusively genetic explanation for everything um, will go nowhere and he'll waste a lot of money. Which sort of begs the question of where's the where's the other side of that technology gone? Because, you know, um, Cold War, Stargate program, that stuff all went, that, that kind of psychic or consciousness-based research and technology went private as well. And it hasn't showed up in Silicon Valley.
1: This is this is the um, this is the thing, isn't it? There's this it seems to be this point in the timeline. It's, just, it's the nineteen seventies, right? Yeah. Where you've got limits to growth. You've got peak oil, and then you've got everything that was your Stargate program, your um, the other interesting you know speculative stuff all going black at the same time.
2: Well, um, I, I see what you see there is it um, going deep private rather than deep black. So uh, the, the sort of second half of the 20th century is the story of the taxpayer funding the R&D and the resulting assets going private. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the 70s, you see, uh, I kind of I had a post about it called There's Something to All of This uh, recently, where you actually see the plan. We're expecting some kind of, I mean, there are underground bases, but we're expecting some sort of, um shadowy room where the plan is written on a wall and it's underground and you need swipe cards to get in and it's all four star generals. It's not. This stuff is out there in the um think tank literature and the, the limits to growth and the sort of these sort of ideas that by the way are still ideas, things like Peak Oil, which hasn't showed up, uh, and the rest of it are what the elite was thinking about in the 70s, along with, oh, there's now too many people on the planet, we're running out of resources. By the way, because all this stuff is public, it's going to get very expensive to do things like um, feed and educate all these people and then have them retire and that's when you start to see the assets move mm-hmm. um, uh, You had the church commission which meant or, or the church committee inquiry, which meant that all the sort of crazy CIA stuff had to be shredded or hidden um, but that process had begun long before it um People forget, I think, that the intelligence world is the child of uh, aristocratic power management. That's literally where it came from, uh, which is why the British were so good at it for centuries. Uh, Like you look at John Dee and Elizabeth I, but you also look at in a lead up to World War II. Before we had things like the CIA. Um a spy network was essentially just a couple of blue bloods who who tapped the old boy's network to find useful people so whilst Churchill had say the London controlling section that just that was just a name he would have had these sort of very rich um kind of wacko people around him who could shoulder tap crowley when they needed him and and whoever else and spies came out of that so there it, it's um it's always been semi private it's always been a um uh, it hasn't been as uh, bureaucratic a job as, say, working at the DMV was. It's always been, we're doing this for a, um, for a, loftier, uh, a loftier purpose, and we can play outside the rules because we're not actually a government employee. You're almost above it. And we forget that a lot of stuff, and particularly as it pertains to things like UFOs, was being lifted out of government hands and going somewhere, even prior to the 70s, so there, you, you see this policy, and it isn't, it's not isn't—it's almost like it's not even a change, it's not like, oh whoops, we need to take this off the government books, it was only barely on the books for convenience, you know, they needed someone to do the research, uh, but you, you see that a dramatic escalation of that uh, from the 70s onwards, and you look at the great chunks of things that went private, and um, Star Wars program all this stuff and and we have no idea how much um, hardware they put up there by then I mean you have in Reagan's memoirs from a meeting in the early 80s he had with NASA people saying amazing we've already got capacity for 150 people up there in what that's that's long before the that's long before the internet yeah whatever it was but like that's long before the International Space Station officially we only had shuttles and none of them were up there so what meeting was he in? And uh, all that stuff goes private, all that stuff goes private thanks to the um, very clever law changes that former CIA director slash former VP slash former P Bush One put in place. So you you actually see him getting kind of plugging in uh, private access to, to top secret clearance Exclusively into the vice president when he was there and that was his first job after the CAA And then from that he goes to president and in that time all this stuff vanishes Um so if you actually follow the legal framework uh, Which is also why I keep talking about the TPP however much it annoys people Because we're, we're seeing the build-out of the supranational legal framework now for the re-onboarding Of that technology from wherever it went when it went
1: Exactly what is um So there's, so we have the breakaway civilization and then we have the shadow state and we have the merger of the two, right?
2: Um, You have a sort of Venn diagram overlap when it's convenient. Um, But like the thing about, uh, I mean, it's a Richard Dolan term and it's, he kind of times it again, it kind of comes back to what we were talking about where spies come from. Um, He says, he used the term breakaway civilization because he kind of reached the inevitable uh, conclusion that we're reaching now, which is you have a um, a very shadowy non-state or, um, group that is has had access to technology that's decades above what's available publicly for decades. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have that iterative uh, investment. So it says at what point do we call that a separate civilization? Now that's true. So if we can kind of time the origin of the breakaway civilization to Whenever that technology, say, got twenty years above um, where is where ours is now, so that might be the seventies, that might be whenever. But this group, like you're still dealing with um, an essentially uh, an essential sort of non-state, very blue blood aristocratic um, shared worldview that predates that. Like that that civilization came out of the sort of early twentieth century, Eddie Bernays, J.P. Morgan, um, Huxley. Idea that you can, for the good of mankind, reorganize culture and civilization. So, these are the people who, you know, they were doing that into the war. Those are the people who were tapped up to kind of build out the CIA or um, intelligence network after the war, during the Cold War. And from that, and again, it's, we, we expect it to be, because it's a simpler answer, we expect it to be a secret government project. It's not, like uh, government is a project of these people. And um, so where, like, where you begin the breakaway civilization, is it's kind of blurry. Um, and that's the same thing with the shadow state because you're still seeing that sort of um, build out of it. And I think that you're ending up, I mean, we see it now, you see the, the fallout of it geopolitically. You're talking about more than one group here, which is, it, what's the word? It's almost encouraging because it <laughs> it means whatever the quote-unquote plan is, it's not a foregone conclusion that it will be action.
1: Exactly. So um, now when you said Huxley, we're talking about Julian Huxley more so. Um.
2: Aldous Huxley. So in that early 20th century, um, Alan Dulles, Gordon Watson, Eddie Bernays, um, J.P. Morgan okay. world, um, where they're actually, and, and they're blatantly talking about, it. I think it's in, um, it's in Bernays' book, where he's basically saying that Civilization is run by people behind the scenes who manipulate culture. That's what he, I mean, he invented PR and he said, that's what we're doing. Yes, and, he, and he, yeah, well, he, well, it's Freud's, exactly. So you, this is what I mean. You have this kind of group of people who are attempting to build this, you know, this new world anyway. And they're not, it, we, we think of them as villains because okay. um, quite correctly, we think we should have the right to define our own kind of like culture and experience of the world. But they were doing it for what they perceived to be correct reasons they are attempting to improve society and that's where it's it's the same thing like the, the breakaway civilization aren't, aren't cartoon villains um, they're genuinely trying to do what they think is best and they deemed the best thing to do um, for whatever reasons and they're probably very scary to take this kind of stuff private and and spend decades harvesting money from the real economy to fund it and it's very interesting to find out why and also why it's coming back into the real world now
1: Mm. It's it's a
2: form of um, how do we say it noblesse oblige. Uh, Oh, noblesse oblige. Yeah, Uh, it is. It's um, well, the Nazis didn't think they were bad either. They thought if they, you know, and unfortunately, that that ideology is kind of the same. Like, well, we're just going to, you know, run a corporate fascist global kind of like city-state model. I don't think that they don't need a one-world government because they've got the legal framework in play. So you're going to end up with a corporate city-state world. That's what their perfect world is. Floating cities where you don't pay tax and all this kind of lunacy.
1: It's Elysium plus-plus.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I the,
1: oh, there's the concept. Have you watched Ghosts in the Shell?
2: Oh, a long time ago.
1: The, the anime, uh, the yep. TV series?
2: Very long time ago.
1: So you have the the idea of the standalone complex, so where people aren't necessarily conspiring, but they're all responding in an interrelated way.
2: Yes, yeah, and that certainly, I think that's a better, not explanation, interpretive model for how you get people who are broadly aligned to go along with how things are supposed to happen. I think mean, you get some certain ritualized signaling to tell people that that's going on, but that's the thing. You don't, people don't need to meet um, and sit around and conspire and say, and now we'll put Hillary up for a democratic thing. And like, you don't need to do that because they, they all see the world the same way anyway. So they would behave that way. Um, and it's, it's where that world has been built in their head uh, that people need to look for, well, if not answers, then a, a kind of model for interpreting what's going on in their world.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so we sort of defined the breakaway civilization a bit more now. Um, the The thing I keep thinking about so Emily showed me Emily Derr showed me this picture from um, this panel from um, Doom twenty ninety nine, which is a the Warren Ellis written, comic, mm-hmm. like fourteen fifteen it's the late nineties, so nearly twenty years ago. Outlines in one panel the entire plan to loot the Earth and go to Mars. Yeah, like in one page, right? And I keep thinking about the the detail of found the water on Mars, and then they go oh, dot 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 confirming. Just like some kid figured out with computer analysis 14 years ago right like some yeah. and it's like well that and then you go well some kid figured it out 14 years ago then right you know how long ago did everyone else know well the
2: the, the 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 most thing to time with sort of putin and obama talking it's, it was very clever so it starts when putin's speaking so that everyone's watching that instead but it ends when obama's speaking so he's literally sort of baptizing his new world order with the you know, salty tears of the war god. And that's just fucking NASA through and through, especially as they've known for decades about water on Mars. Like, this is preposterous. Like, big, big, exciting announcement. And not only if if they hadn't known about it for decades, we had confirmation from the director of The Martian that um, they told him about it several weeks beforehand so that they could use it to kind of... So the idea that you would announce it at the same time as Obama speaking at the UN... Like it's not like you rushed this to fucking press, you pricks. Mm. Um like you could have picked literally any other time <laughs> and yet you didn't. So it's and that is some classic Eddie Bonet stuff because you kind of get the um uh, the information high of going, Wow, science, wow, Western powers, look at us. We can we go to Mars and find things, and it, it sort of reactivates in your head that um Ra ra America modernism of the 60s and, and, and everything is good at the same time as this fucking psychopath is talking about um more controlling the internet and Saudi Arabia can run human rights and um, we need to change laws in all these countries so that Nestle can get access to water and like it's just remarkable um like you have to sort of say congratulations this is like extremely good manipulation but I mean, the Mars piece has been in play. I mean, did you listen to uh, Dr. Brandenburg's interview on THC the other week? Yeah, it's probably his best one. I mean, he's ex-Clementine mission, and you know, plasma physicist, and he's like, look, people have known about the, they've known about the nuclear bombing of Mars since the seventies. Um, so, <laughs> oh, look, we found water. Like, yeah, yeah, you have. Dr. Brandenburg's the guy who's got a book called Death on Mars, and he's a plasma physicist who worked on the Clementine mission, which, by the way, was a uh, it's a spy satellite around the moon. And it was a Department of Defense project. It wasn't a NASA project. Um, so the, the satellites that they use now to kind of read the newspapers over the shoulder of the terrorists that they're watching. Is circling around Mars and we uh, around the Moon, and we still just get those shitty, blurry, black and white photos out of NASA. Go, that's interesting. (laughs) Anyway, um, he worked out because of the xenon one two nine, the levels of xenon one two nine in the uh, Martian atmosphere that it had been bombed somewhere between half a billion and a quarter of a billion years ago, because that is not that's a weapon signature. That's not like a a natural um, nuclear reaction, as you tend to find in some places on Earth. and, there, and it's it's concentrated over Sidonia and the other place I remember it's like Galacticus chaos or something, but areas that we've both the Soviets and the u s have had very strong suspicions that there are um, vastly ancient ruins and then not only is there that there is xenon one two nine in the atmosphere above them um so there were, he he's calculated the sort of weight of the the bomb that would be required and it's sort of the size of the Empire State Building and would have been dropped from space because it was a um like uh, it was an atmospheric explosion rather than uh, a ground one because otherwise there'd be one heck of a crater um so like he's put these pieces together and that happened so something bomb dropped two very large bombs on mars half a billion years ago and they want to tell me about some salty water come on <laughs> anyway that's that's one um, that's one to listen to because he's got He has the creds and the science to back it up. That
1: was literally the plot of an Adventure Time episode.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, but it's also, you're kind of in that um, John Carter world. This was was sort of floating around that weird combination of um, high imperial spirituality and the beginnings of science fiction at the end of the 19th, early 20th century. So a better question is why that specific story shape? Where did that come from? And this is kind of coming back to, I don't know where the weaponization of that kind of technology, that sort of consciousness-based consciousness, um, consciousness based, uh, either prophecy or whatever you want to call it, like magical powers. I don't know where the weaponization of that technology has gone because it's certainly not showing up in Silicon Valley. And they're all off like and as a result you kind of have a breakaway of the breakaway because Mm. whilst Elon Musk knows that there's some stuff up there and he's been politely asked not to mention it he's genuinely going into space to make money like he's not part of that sort of wackadoo quasi masonic channeling um, half Nazi weirdos that were kind of floating around the background of things like um, NASA in their um, 60s. He's not at all interested. He sees the world the way Peter Thiel does. Um, you know, it's it's a. Uh, they want no tax. Everything's just atoms and bits. And he's going to space to, like, not just to make money. And, like, I don't want to diminish that. Um, he does want to die on Mars, but he wants to die on Mars because human civilization needs to become multi planetary rather than. Because it sort of folds into a more interesting cosmic narrative of who we are and the existential implications of that.
1: I mean, he's very much laying down the infrastructure for the the new world, or whatever. Right? You know, you got your-
2: yeah, yeah. So, um, and, and yeah. well, if you look at the companies he's involved in, if you look at that and Uber and so on, they were, none of them are profitable. Um. And just like you, we, we sort of now start to realize um, that you have sort of DARPA investment into the beginning of Google, you have that same Jurassic World-style um, military backend into these companies because that's... But it's, the, it's a shadow state military backend because what they, like Uber is... What the railroads as an entire concept were at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, one single company is... At the beginning of the twenty-first century, like that is a that is private, like privately owned planetary infrastructure. Because last time around, it was a weird mix of um, you know railroad barons and and different track sizes, and it it all didn't work. And then it got very expensive to run at a state level, but there was money to be made. And so what you're seeing is the onboarding of, this, and this is what the TPP is for. Um, private ownership of entire ideas or industries, um, rather than—I mean, look at what Amazon's going to become. Look at what Uber's going to become. Um, you have uh, genuinely an oligarchical ownership of stuff that used to just be not only free but almost like commons access. Like, why there will now be no other way to, uh, in twenty years' time, no other way to kind of get physical parcels or people somewhere except for like Google branded or Uber branded robot cars. Like that's, it's mental, you, know? <laughs> you won't be allowed on the road. Like that's what I mean, you, you watch the laws happen and it'll it'll start with, uh, we need laws that allow for non-driving cars. And then a few years later, it will be only automatic cars on the road, you know.
1: For our own section.
2: Of course, it always is. Uh, and that's the bit that you, you kind of can't make those big bold moves without the TPP in place, because it allows corporations to turn around and sue or restrict governments that want to get in the way of this. So when an Argentina turns around and says, hang on, go fuck yourself, it'll be like, I'm sorry, you have no legal recourse here. Um, So either we, we deploy our privatized infrastructure into your country or we sue you into penury and come in anyway. Uh, and those are the legal pieces that we're seeing to kind of have this privatized multiplanetary civilization on board over the next forty years. That's that's the play now. Like these pieces are coming back because we can now be multiplanetary. One of the things Catherine Austin Fitz, I think she mentioned in that presentation, is the drive towards a digital currency. One of the reasons behind it is you need a non-physical currency if you are going to be a multiplanetary civilization, because the ATMs on Mars are a long way from the bank
1: remember the film network yeah 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 remember the speech in the boardroom at the end
2: of course classic I i studied that at film school good film
0: you have meddled with the primal forces of nature mr beale and i won't have it is that clear you think you merely stopped a business deal? That is not the case. The Arabs have taken billions of dollars out of this country, and now they must put it back. It is ebb and flow, tidal gravity. It is ecological balance. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no Third Worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. Petrodollars, electrodollars, multidollars, reichmarks, rims, rubles, pounds, and shekels. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order of things today. That is the atomic and subatomic and galactic structure of things today. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature and you will atone.
3: Am I getting through to you, Mr. Beale? You get up on your little 21-inch screen... and howl about America and
0: democracy.
3: There is no America. There is no democracy. There is only... IBM, and ITT, and AT&T, and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide, and Exxon. Those are the nations of the world today. What do you think the Russians talk about in their councils of state, Karl Marx? They get out their linear programming charts, statistical decision theories, minimax solutions, and compute the price-cost probabilities of their transactions and investments, just like we do. We no longer live in a world of nations and ideologies, Mr. Beale. The world is a college of corporations, inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business, Mr. Beale. It has been since man crawled out of the slime. And our children will live, Mr. Beale, to see that perfect world in which there's no war or famine, oppression or brutality. One vast and ecumenical holding company for whom all men will work to serve a common purpose in which all men will hold a share of stock, all necessities provided, all anxieties tranquilized, all boredom amused. And I have chosen you, Mr. Beale, Preach this evangel.
0: But why me?
1: Because you're on television, dummy. There's another film by the same director or the same writer called um, Hospital.
2: No, I haven't seen that one. Funny enough, um, I might have. Again, I, you know, oh, I'm old, Mikey. <laughs> I might have seen it at some stage. <laughs> And I don't know about you, but like at university, I watched loads of films, but I was like off my face for quite a bit of that time. So I may have seen it.
1: It's um, like David Cameron said, the usual university experience.
2: Mm Mm-hmm, exactly. I may have done that as well. There are scenes missing, you know.
1: (laughs) How did Black Mirror become a documentary? Oh, you know, I think if you,
2: especially in the, here at the kind of end of democracy, if you expect or think the very, very worst of the people who are currently running for power, you're going to be right more often than you're going to be wrong. Like they are murderers and they do creepy things, so it just it does not surprise me in the slightest.
1: I'd forgotten that they gave Obama the the um, Nobel Prize.
2: Yeah, yeah. Record for most Arab wars started by any president ever. No, but you, the Nobel Prize is that it's it's given out by a fucking king. So whenever you see a Nobel Prize, look at. Why? Al Gore has one for his nonsense. Um can't, And the same with the guys who, quote unquote, found the Higgs boson. Like, fuck they did. Like, Nobel Prizes are put on ideas that need to become official rather than things that are real. And so Obama needs to officially be the good guy. Um All subsequent evidence to the contrary.
1: Did you have a chance to look at David Forbes's book during the week? Or not?
2: No, sadly I didn't. Um, and uh, funnily enough, because I know he was going to, we, we might yet arrange that uh, round table, but um, I, I, I was busy and I said, oh, damn it, I've got homework before the podcast. And then when he said he couldn't make it, I'm like, yes, no homework. <laughs> I will uh, read it though.
1: Yeah, I really, Well, I freed up some time because I've only read the first half. Oh, ah, cool. But um, part of what he talks about in the first half is the deliberate construction of the right-wing science fictional narrative through the 20th century, by when Heinlein swings to the right, when um, and those other guys' uh, names, I can't remember, where which ties in perfectly. See, so have you read Graver's Debt? Debt? No, I haven't. It has the whole idea, I haven't quite finished yet, that um, everyone has to pay their debts, but America.
2: Right?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That's how the, the world runs, right? Everyone else pays the tribute. If anyone doesn't pay the tribute... They have to suffer, but America gets a free ride because they're they're the top of the patriarchy. And the top of the patriarchy is unquestioned, right? Mm. Because they're the wise old man. And that's the narrative that the right-wing science fiction has been setting up for the whole 20th century that I think still finds, that's where I'm going, finds its way into Tomorrowland, right?
2: Yeah, I... Is it right-wing, though? I mean, this this idea of um, debt funding, this idea of debt funding is, is, is a very state idea. Like, the observation that science fiction is sort of an arena for the exploration of these ideas, and there's no getting away from the fact that much of 20th century science fiction is kind of, like, loving lips around the military-industrial dick. There's just nothing... No other way to realize that it it does emerge out of the idea of thinking. Well, what what happens once? What happens if you have an aircraft carrier in space? So it actually does come from a. um, It does have a lot of that in it, but it similarly has that kind of unthinking left, um, national socialist kind of nonsense. So it because it's such a broad canvas on which to paint, uh, everyone sort of. runaway fascisms uh, (laughs) can show up, and I think that um, that elitism is both left and right because you know it's it almost it it predates it it predates uh, the industrial revolution frankly that um, the exceptional will rule Um, and uh, but yeah, so I might I might read the book because there's no question as well that over the 20th century as a um genre, it's been very good at building ideas into the wider culture, coming back to that Eddie Bernays sense of like, well, here's how we um we do that. And it's it's how you end up with certain books on, say, the curriculum in, in schools and certain books not. I mean, the the state's very good at 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 moving cultural pieces around to make sure that people think um the way they'd like them to think. That was like the whole sort of Bernays project. So yes, there's there's definitely something to it that we sort of have. It's kind of whichever whichever way of seeing space wins is how we will ultimately experience space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it's, it sort of broadly followed the, the Star Trek journey as well. I mean, Star Trek didn't start off, uh, Star Trek started off a little bit kind of small C conservative um, To the right, in the sense that Gene Roddenberry described it as wagon train to the stars, so it's kind of that it it emerged out of almost westerns as a genre, and they do tend to lean more um, to the right in a in a small sense, like uh, property ownership and 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 personal liberty and all that kind of stuff. So, but by the time you get to next gen in the late 80s, early 90s, it's this Democrats in space view of the world um, where they don't have money and they're you know. They're kind of enlightened, and um, it's, yes, we're interested in science, but this is also a heavily armed warship, uh, and it's that very smug uh, idea that we know better, and we're beyond these these silly ideas. And by the time you get to the end of DS9, so another show over, and sort of 12, 13 years later, it's kind of trapped itself in its own implications. Like the last two series of DS9, the Federation has... Um, you know, a, a dangerous and unaccountable intelligence network, and, and laws to do with terrorism, because these changelings can look like anyone else, and uh, it's it's gone full fascist. Like they, they, I think somewhere along, somewhere in DS Nine, they realize the implications of an allegedly scientific mission in a hyper armed uh, warship that also has children aboard. And you think okay. that's a that's a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, and so, what was it? Go, go on.
1: Control backdrop. What was what? What was the contemporary
2: cultural backdrop when that show was airing? Oh, DS9. Well, DS9's late 90s. So Star Trek kind of, so, it, so it's all pre-911. Um, pre 11
1: but post-Iraq,
2: right? Uh, Post-Iraq one, yes. But Star Iraq Trek's one. been always very insular. Like um, it, uh, when, uh, so uh, Ronald D. Moore did Battlestar, and that's probably the best show about Iraq, and that's an early 90s show. So um, Star Trek tended to look, inward in a funny way. Um, I I mean it it sort of reflected culture and like by doing things like having the first uh, multiracial on-screen kiss and and that kind of stuff but it was never intentionally designed, I don't think, it was always inward looking and particularly because they were interested in some very weird ideas. Um, So it it sat in the 90s um, but I think like, I mean, the, the middle two series of DS9 are almost unwatchably bad just because it, it's just dreadful. Just, you know, I mean, that's that was TV. That's what happens. Um, but the last two, they start to actually realize what the last 30 years of Star Trek kind of means. And um, they end up worshipping, you know, these interdimensional aliens. And for somewhere along the way, the prophets actually become like the gods of the federation effectively, they stop calling them wormhole aliens and and, and you have Starfleet officers running off doing their bidding and Admiral saying okay well if the prophets have told you to do this we can do it and I'm like wait a minute <laughs> aren't you supposed to be like um you're democrats in space you're like so you've got this weird thing where the federation is is manipulating its allies and monitoring itself and it has um breakaway factions kind of subverting its own laws to fight terrorists uh, at the same time that at the very top, there's this sort of in, like uh, a growing acceptance that effectively our gods are interdimensional interdimensional aliens. It's really weird to watch. Um, and I think that shows a maturity. That's what happens when you look at something for 30 years and go, well, let's actually take this mythology to its inevitable conclusions. And that's what they came up with. And weirdly, it's turned out to kind of be correct. That's actually what, um, if, if next generation is Democrats in space, we sort of had series eight with President Obama, and that's exactly what it's turned into. It's turned into this rogue, ungovernable, treacherous, um, and as a result, extremely dangerous um, military entity that is um, pretending to be civilized. Yeah, I haven't watched it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, well, I I mean, this is my first run-through, I, as we were discussing this yesterday, but um, I had I seen all of Next Gen, but I never got the whole way through DS9 because those middle series were just really bad. So this summer, when there hasn't been anything on, we've sort of powered through it, and, oh, my God. Like, the last two series were good. Um, But, my God, the middle there. And you'd sort of groan. you go, oh, it's another Wolf episode. Kill me. <laughs> um, the,
1: um, the Doctor's name. Dr. Bashir. Yeah, Bashir. So he's, yeah. he's the only interesting character I found. I did. I did the section thirty one tour without. Oh,
2: so you got the fact that he was genetically enhanced and all that kind of stuff.
1: That's my, my whole bugbear with Star Trek has been that from a transhumanist perspective that they invented a this whole um, Khan, you know, super soldier war to then justify the human purism of the entire show. That is, you know, you can't be genetically modified. Genetically modified is bad. You can't be transhuman.
2: Yeah, and um, again, I—that's th- the Democrats in Space idea. That was the sort of like you know late eighties, early nineties kind of Clinton era thinking about science being apolitical and and good. Um, but by the end of it, you sort of take those. This is why I think Star Trek DS Nine kind of saved itself, because you take those ideas to the natural conclusions. That okay, so if we have a a federation ban on genetic modification, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It means it's gone like rogue or pirate or underground or into the black economy. And so you do start to see that surfacing, and then all it, it builds into that um, paranoia where you ha- the, the enemies are these literally shape-shifting aliens, but you also have humans who could be enhanced in lying about it. And, and it's, it's weird that it actually kind of, I think, somewhere along the line recognized the implications of the worldview it had built, and then it took them to their natural conclusion. Um, so B- Bashir is interesting in that respect that he he lied his way through Starfleet pretending that he wasn't genetically enhanced and he was and uh, that's that sort of layering of, of paranoia as well as worshipping interdimensional aliens that kind of takes DS9 to its conclusion. Yes,
1: yeah, scoops yeah, the whole shape you know, aliens. Yeah,
2: fair enough. Pretty one <laughs>
1: <Light
2: up. laughs> um, It's the the kind of. Weirder parts of Star Trek, like the, as in, from a shadow state overlap happened um, at the very beginning with the old series and uh, and Roddenberry and it incubating out of the Twilight Zone and mm-hmm. um, Leslie Stevens um, Jr. being the EP of both, and he was the son of um, essentially one of the founders of NASA and um, like a a massive like Cold War spy, and he was here. Um, in London during World War II as a kind of naval attache to the court at St. James and, and all this. So you you have essentially, I'm not saying, like Star Trek, isn't it? No, we need to kind of maybe get more sophisticated about when we see fragments of reality in science fiction as to how they got there. And In some cases, it's, it's um, telling tales out of school, like 2001. Um, but in other cases, it's just, well, what did Leslie Stevens Jr. and Sr. kind of talk about At thanksgiving like idly um in and out of it and those ideas sort of whirl around in his head and i think tomorrowland is an example of that i think there are enough of these ideas not that hollywood isn't shot through with spies and manipulation but there are enough of these ideas that you kind of you kind of know that there are underground bases in california and you kind of know that people are working on um these sort of robotics projects or these sort of things, like you, you hear it because that's what happens. It's not like Dick Cheney needs to show up to the writing room or to the writer's room and say, I have some notes. Um, the ideas just sort of wash through the, um, the industry and they end up in people's heads and then they end up on the screen. And I think in, uh, in, in Star Trek's case, that was probably it, which isn't to say, and I think this is all down to Ronald D. Moore, frankly, who went on obviously to do um, Battlestar. Because he joined um, as a writer in Next Gen. At, um, just as a, he did a spec script, and he, he came on as a writer. And, and Roddenberry was still alive and involved, and he had some very specific weirdo notes for him. So um, Moore came on board because he was a Star Trek fan. Um, and I, as a result of that, rather than coming from that kind of weirdo background, he liked what that weirdo background produced and, and joined as a writer. And I think by the time he got to DS9, he would have had enough time to think about where this stuff came from, what does it mean, and uh, and sort of very confidently took that to where it needed to go for the last two series. Um, sort of the same with Battlestar, I think. Um, I think that was his, his exorcism of um, Star Trek, because Star Trek is is full-blown magic. Um, it's the, the, the science talk is jibber-jabber, and which is also why they don't do things like transhumanism very well, because they're not interested. They're interested in magic. They're interested in interdimensional beings, and gods, and tin men, and, and all that. Um, it's a fantasy show rather than a science fiction show. And Battlestar goes not in the opposite direction, because it does kind of have that ancient alien's conclusion. Um, but it ha- it has less of these like nonsense, um, shiny beings and there there's no Q continuum or any of that stuff. It's it's That's uh good. yeah. Um it's it's genuinely looking at the implications of uh the sort of left leaning American military worldview post Iraq or not military worldview, but uh, left leaning militarized American worldview post Iraq. Uh, and as a result, I think it's very uh
1: very intelligent. Yeah i the ending just
2: tainted it for me now see on, on a rewatch i'm okay with it i am um, yeah first time around but I, you you want something bombastic after all the kind of cool shit that had happened elsewhere but it you know um yeah i like it, it i like it better on a rewatch and funny enough watching how the world is going i am like, hmm um yeah y- you think wait a minute I'm pretty sure this is the montage at the end of Battlestar Galactica when you start to see all the different robots and, and the national news coverage they get. And I'm like, hmm, that's quite cool. <laughs> um,
1: before we leave Star Trek, I have to ask if you've seen, I think it's called Renegades, the, like, high-market fan film. No, I haven't. Which is completely Shadow State stuff. It's just an off-the-book operation to run around doing. It's got not Worf. It's got, um, it's like not, it's got Edward Furlong you know.
2: Really? (laughs) um, I know. I have to look it up.
1: Who's unrecognisable, but clearly the best actor on stage the whole time. Mm. And um, from Blade Runner, the um, the replicant, the chief replicant,
2: Blade Runner. No, I'll I'll have to look it up. That sounds like fun. But yeah, I mean, Deep Space Nine has the defiant in it. So against their own laws and treaties, they you know they built um, a warship that could cloak with weapons that were illegal. Um, because they were facing a threat that um the current legal infrastructure didn't allow them or they didn't think that they could face given the current legal infrastructure. And that's interesting. That's sort of that's where DS9 I think gets um because it's a Ronald D. Moore trait to kind of look back at the implications of military, we saw that with Battlestar. Like mm-hmm. it's interesting that the whole thing just grows in increasing paranoia and chaos. Um and it, and it starts with this, you know, like if you, if you started at Next Gen, because there's sort of a very significant line in the sand between the original series and then the stuff that came afterwards. But if you take it back to the beginning of Next Gen, the sort of that glorious um, rational scientific promise. Uh, you follow its conclusion through to the end of DS Nine, and it's it's nothing but spies and interdimensional aliens and 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 black military projects and increasing chaos, and it starts with that. Um, and so viewed as a macro, and, and not not intentionally either. That's what's funny to watch it because we've kind of had that play out in reality, and it's interesting that it's played out in a, a in a fictional universe and ended up at the same spot. Absolutely.
1: So let's. I'm just looking at. I'm not sure how long we're going for about an hour now, I think. Um, let's, let's speculate as to where, so when you say, people running around fighting a threat, only they can see. And we, when we're talking about them telling tales out of school, hmm. what's, what's your, what's, what's the Gordon reading of reality?
2: Um, well, I guess there's probably several. I think, um, and that's why the Brandenburg stuff is so interesting and, and people need to look at, if it became apparent well, if, if he accidentally found it in the 70s or whatever it was, that um, Mars had been nuked. And he sort of tells the story of um, how he accidentally came to that discovery um, in the THC Plus interview. So if, if people are THC Plus listeners, they should definitely get that, or they should be anyway. Um, and I think, so that you're looking at several different things. When it comes to explicitly extraterrestrial threats, what I think it is is the realization that some of the like remains and particularly on Mars, do not look like they just naturally... Just sort of died out. They didn't. Mars is fucked. Something fucked Mars quite good. And I still think that there is a sizable chunk of people at a senior level, and you can tell because of the vigorousness with which they dismiss this idea, that suggests that the asteroid belt may have once been Humpty Dumpty and now isn't. And if you look across the solar system over the last over a half billion years, some fucking shit went down. And uh, if your job is to, I mean, defend America, but in theory defend the earth, and you you kind of wake up and realize you're in the remains of a very damaging war zone, like you just sort of woken up on the sum today, you know, <laughs> like, oh, this is not good. I can't currently see what did this, but something did. And I think that's a big part of the, um, the militarization of space because you you look at it and think, space is not peaceful. We can archaeologically make that conclusion uh, just looking at our own solar system. It's currently peaceful, or at least in like, you know, spectra that which we can observe. Uh, And I think that's a big part of it. I think they need to know when we get out there in in an almost Star Trek way, hopefully some of them will be be friendly, probably not a lot of them. We don't really know. Uh, We only have the archaeology to suggest that Well, even well, the evidence—some of it's archaeology—but the evidence, the scientific evidence, suggests that it it isn't a peaceful place. So, in a specifically space-faring sense, I think that's what they're thinking about. Um, However, the the implications of a rational description or a rational understanding of the kind of combination of UFO monitoring and uh, psychic spies and all that kind of Cold War stuff. Where that overlaps, I think you end up with almost a separate challenge, which is how do we govern in a reality that is essentially run on consciousness, where we have extra dimensional contact on a regular, sometimes random, sometimes not random basis, that doesn't appear to be uh, under our control in any measurable way and so i think you're sort of dealing with two separate challenges there's, the, there's the, the the cosmos one there's the um the almost ontological implications of of how you run yeah a um a, a a democratic capitalist um nation in in sort of jacques Vallée's universe and then you have this specific military challenge of as we become multiplanetary we are going to it is more likely than not that we're going to meet things that are hostile.
1: Um, there was one, I can't remember which one, because so I listened to about a hundred of the Joseph Carell.
2: Oh, the bite Show ones. I've never, I haven't been able to dive through that. <laughs> I've heard a few of them on YouTube. I should, at some stage, get through them all.
1: It's good. I think it's, it's, um, it's one called Cosmic, Cosmic War, um, where he sort of gets into it more. That he compares the Earth to being under whats whatever that line is in world war Two, the um the line that's set up around
2: Germany oh the quote on sanitaire yeah he uses that
1: uh he uses that
2: as uh that analogy a lot um mm-hmm. reminds- and the, um, Sorry. yeah no, you go
1: it reminds me of the um my favorite answer to the to the drake the Drake equation and the um you know where is everybody
2: mm-hmm.
1: question of uh, the the zoo hypothesis that yeah that we're being kept behind this line. <laughs> and maybe
2: yeah. Disarmed 10,000 years ago. Or... Well, So he, he hears oh. that because it, it, he likes to fold it into the Sumerian kind of, mm-hmm. a sort of post-Sitchin interpretation of Sumeria, which I don't necessarily line up with. But um, I yeah, I, I, I prefer, I guess the, the answer to the Fermi paradox for me is that you really only need one civilization to have a very different, um, moral framework to kind of remove a lot of the diversity in the universe anyway. Um, but the other one is we're um, we're very young in a very old universe mm-hmm. and if you watch, like if you run the Kardashev scale through um, the universe is old enough to have basically gone from uh, to have had thousands to millions of civilizations go from essentially single cellular the whole way through to immortal beings of light. And so I suspect that my Solve or my current solve for the Fermi paradox is um, that these beings are, it's probably a very crowded universe. Um, It's just not in the kind of range of sensory perception that we have at this particular point in time. Uh, And that's sort of why you can see not just recent ruins, like half a bit, like 500 million years ago is the kind of top end based on the half life of Xenon 129 um, for the bomb being dropped on Mars. So, like, there weren't even dinosaurs on. Um, just to bring it back to dinosaurs, but there weren't even dinosaurs on Earth then. So it's not like it's it's impossible to say. Well, maybe we're the survivors of an interplanetary civilization, and it's those timelines that I struggle with with a kind of cordon sanitaire um, interpretation of where is everybody or why are we here? Because if we're the, the refugees of a, or if we're the after effect of a nearby cosmic war, the remains wouldn't be quite so old. Like the, and the, and the, there would be other um, nuclear signatures in the atmosphere because xenon 129 is so long lived like the rest of them have all had all sort of half-lifed out of measurability uh, and so there's the too much of a, a time gap for me in uh, in that. I may be wrong, um, but when I, the, the the sort of extraterrestrial remains or evidence that I find the most compelling sits kind of a, above the 250 million year, years ago line and um, I struggle to see how there's a, a physical connection to it. Now, that said, my soul for why these sort of Laurasian mythologies in particular appear to match things that could have happened a very long time ago is almost like a Final Fantasy movie uh, or Scientology component, that these stories are either available in... in not like like whatever the akashic records actually is they're they're available for a consciousness to access or the remains of these civilizations or someone who was around to watch it were there so that on a on a consciousness based or shamanic level um these stories were kind of passed from the spirit realm um back into the physical i don't think i think materialism disrupts uh, alternate history just as much as it does Normal history. We we see the we see in the in mythology a match for things that appear to have happened in space, and think that there must be a physical reason for it. There actually doesn't need to be. If like for a magician, there doesn't need to be, um, because there are other ways of accessing that information. Fuck yeah! <laughs> so yeah, you're gonna like my book.
1: I am. I am gonna like your book. No, hang on, it's two books, there, right? Yeah, 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 but like.
2: Um, Starships, as you can probably tell from the title, gets into that um, gets into this area quite in at some depth.
1: Well, we're definitely coming back to that.
2: Oh yeah. Um, I got my Redline copy through on Friday, so I need to check the final draft and it's and then it's you know, off to the printers. Um, hopefully, I'm guessing November, I think we'll be taking pre-orders uh, end of October, early November. It's definitely this year.
1: Mm-hmm. Just in time for the end of the world. You know it. Oh, you haven't watched... How much of um, um the one that isn't DS9? The one that DS9 ripped off?
2: Babylon 5.
1: Babylon 5,
2: thank you. Uh, like, as, as they were saying yesterday, like, I've got them all. It's just I, we watched them through on VHS tape because it was on at whatever it was, 10.30 at night. And I remember when it was on on broadcast, it was up against something else in Australia that we also watched. I can't remember what it was. So I ended up missing it. So it's patchy. I know the broad shape of it, but that's, that's now that I've done with DS9, I'm just going to take a quiet breath mm-hmm. and then jump into that. That's Dr. Farrell's favorite. I don't know if he mentions it in the Byte show, but it, it comes up fairly often that that's like his sci-fi show. That's the one that he thinks is uh, quite good at well, the, the most robust metaphysical exploration in a TV show.
1: Yeah, the the middle seasons, uh, where it gets into the heart of the Cosmic War and the, the battle yeah. between light and dark is incredible. And the answer is amazing. There's a thing, just talking about artifacts on Mars, there's a thing that Babylon 5 shares with quite a number of works. But the main one for me is, do you know the video game Mass Effect? Universe?
2: Yeah, I know it. I don't play games, but yeah, I know the one you mean
1: where they, as soon as we get to Mars, there's something they're waiting that then unlocks the universe. It's either a spacecraft we reverse engineer or a gateway to the teleportation system
2: or... Well, that um, that was in Red Planet as well, wasn't it? Oh, God, Red Planet. Um, which, in, uh, and even weirder, that was the fir- like NASA, and it's in the credits. Like, NASA consulted heavily on this film, thanks to NASA for being involved. I'm like, wait a minute. NASA was involved in the story of a... Mission to Mars that kind of gets trapped, the usual story, gets trapped there, walks inside the face on Mars, experiences an interdimensional ancient being, and then we become truly, like, truly interstellar. Wow. Yeah, sorry, sorry, what? NASA helped on that, like, in the credits and all. That's fucking interesting. This is what I mean about, hey, look, we found we found the remains of salty water on Mars. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know what else you found. You, like, yeah. yeah. And that's how it, these things show up in culture for that reason. When um so the artist Paul Lafole when he was in uh London the other year, and, and I mean he's been he's had uh UFO encounters and all that kind of cool shit that happens to extremely talented artists. Um and he's like, Look, I know the I, I've been friends with the NASA people who talk about the stuff on Moon and Mars. I've been friends with them for 20 years. They've known about it since the 60s. Mm. And um it's one of those things, it's it's almost like a it's not a very well-kept secret, or maybe it is, and I just think that the divergence between further discovery of this and the the just sheer nonsense that they put out, like crowdfunding little, like NASA just exists as this absurd. It's like it's a Facebook group. It's I fucking love science. It's it's absurd uh when you consider that they're saying this shit and and you have morons getting like, oh, aren't we great? We found water on Mars. I'm like you you are dumb as a fucking stump if you think that's what's going on. Like, And it, yeah. But
1: there's actually it's, people, did you see this, that think that it's a documentary?
2: Who thought what was a documentary? Oh, Christ. Yeah. More interestingly is why they're in, uh, so the last film that NASA was so publicly proud to be associated with was Red Planet, mm. to my memory, and then The Martian, which is kind of the same story, but in a, uh, in a more boring way. Like it's a boring version of it, stuck on Mars. Uh, And I I mean that, I'm going to see the film. I don't mean that as a negative to either Matt Damon or the film. I'm sure it's quite good. But last time around, NASA basically went full Richard Hoagland Mm -hmm. by participating in the film. Mm -hmm. And then this time around, it's, uh, it's I fucking love science. But it does, because people can confuse it for a documentary, it does kind of lay the idea that we will... Like, we'll get there. Like, everyone's goal still seems to be the same. It's Buzz Aldrin, Elon Musk, whoever you want. Everyone's goal seems to be we need to get to Mars. And, uh, and the first, and I think you can kind of see the what's the word here? Almost like the intellectual journey. The reason is discerned in Mass Effect or Red Planet. Like, that's what they think is going to happen or know is going to happen. Who knows? And then with the Martian, it's start. This is that onboarding of that back into reality. Like, we start to see that this will. Assuming, from an actuarial perspective, this will happen in our lifetimes, Mikey.
1: Yeah, it's the inevitability of
2: it. Yeah, and that's, and this yeah. is the bit. This is yeah. I, I don't understand how people are uh, are missing this reonboarding of of the quote unquote plan. Um, it's remarkable. It's possibly terrifying, but it's definitely remarkable.
1: Well, the the terrifying bit is the rationale. Yeah. So, and we haven't even got into the whole financing. You know, running drugs and.
2: Well, sure. I mean, for all intents and purposes, they have unlimited money because you have um, a a sort of asset harvest at the end of uh, World War Two um, that went somewhere um, in that kind of somewhere in between Vatican Bank, HSBC. Um, you know, these sort of bankers-to-spooks world. Um, you had ongoing funding from, I mean, not even just the sort of Iran-Contra-Gary Webb stuff, but they did the same thing in Afghanistan. And it's an old idea. I mean, uh, the British Empire did that, like, swap drugs for the things it actually wanted. So again, this is this spook behavior comes from that aristocratic world. So they, they've had unlimited money and ongoing funding, and also, again, as Catherine talks about, the legal in the US, uh, not only an enormous black budget, but a way to kind of claw money from other federal programs as well in an, on a non-transparent basis if they need it. So you think you're paying your taxes to go to fund schools, and um, if if the shadow state, if the CIA needs additional funding, it can claw it from um, other federal budgets uh, for classified reasons, so you don't even know. Yeah. So they have unlimited money, and then they build a um, uh, what is effectively the machine, um, which allows, as, again, the ultimate insider trading mechanism so that you have like a full 360 view of what uh, Fortune 100 CEOs are doing at all times. Uh, You know where their mistress's bodies are buried, you know, the whole thing, which means you can, you have unlimited money. Even if you weren't inventing it yourself, you have a tremendous pool of capital that you can invest and never lose because you know what's going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, you can trigger it. Uh, Why do they need unlimited money to topple over... Admittedly, quite a few, but to topple over a few South American governments, um, they don't. There's uh, there's a problem that requires unlimited money that we don't know, and it might just be a belief. Um, so the um, we we're still kind of I think they I think they've realised that they don't need to depopulate because the the planet's population is only growing on a short term basis. On a medium term basis, it's not. Um, but I think there are a number of ideas that are probably not true that they previously held an informed policy, like overpopulation and peak oil and so on, that makes it look like the planet is, uh, is imminently doomed rather than medium-term doomed, that has sort of uh, triggered the haste. I think that's part of it. And I think once you sort of get three quarters of the way through funding your kind of off-planet civilization, and then even if you come to the conclusion actually it turns out it's not super urgent, as if you wouldn't just still do it. (laughs) You're gonna need it anyway. So it's possible that there isn't, uh, it's possible they were jumping at shadows rather than um, jumping at things in the shadows uh, as to why there is this urgency, um, because that was what the cutting edge science of the 70s, the limits to growth model and and what have you suggested. There were too many people, this is too expensive, the world is fucked, we only have enough oil to get to 1992, you know, all these things. That have, and none of which have, have borne out but nevertheless that policies kind of uh, may have informed an escalation of of the need to get off planet. I mean on the long term over the long term obviously we need if the human race needs to survive it needs to be multiplanetary that's self-evident. Um, I don't particularly care if we if we survive or not like in an, in a nice sense like the universe doesn't give a shit. Um, but like if we want to we need to be multiplanetary. So if if we're kind of if we're within a decade or so of that now great. Um, hopefully there isn't an urgency that we currently can't see as to why that would be the case. Um, you know, might as well do it.
1: I would like to go on a spaceship. <laughs> Same.
2: You know, it occurred to me like doing the research for the archaeology series in particular and kind of working out or having a stab at what these timelines are. Again, on an actuarial basis, if um if if the first world economies remain mostly first world and we don't die in the next 20 years, you'll end up on a spaceship. You'll Whatever Virgin Galactic becomes, even if it's just as a kind of like those, those flights you can do to Antarctica where you sort of get off and look at a penguin and get back on and come back, Like you, mm-hmm. you'll end up in space. Just don't die in the next 10 years, Mikey.
1: I'm not playing on it.
2: Good. <laughs>
1: uh, um, yeah, I think that's probably a positive note to end things on.
2: What, you're not dying? Maybe.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I like I like the whole um, if we live you know, where, where we're reaching and without going full Kurtzwell. If, yeah. if you if you live five more years, we've got ten more years of life. That sort of logic.
2: Right? Yes. Um,
1: see so is growing, and you know I'm I'm I'm, I'm about to turn forty in a couple of months, right? And yeah. I don't Feel yeah. I don't look forty. Nice. Uh, I don't feel old. Right. And my my peers don't feel old like people did you know yeah no yeah but it's not a perpetual adolescence it's just a strengthening on uh, it's
2: yeah well it's it's a change of perspective on the human life i guess um there are things less in the Kurzweil direction that i think you can like for instance if like if you were to if slash when um one of us gets cancer like i'm i'm gonna go straight straight into kind of immune system management so that um the THC, like Rick Simpson oil and the rest of it, because it appears that the the immune system is everything. It is the wall against everything. Uh, and it's also the wall that they sort of attacked with engineered viruses, which is in that kind of Ebola, HIV world. Um, but if anything that happens to you is a, is a disruption of that. And so you start to think, I mean, he wants to be this absurd little software program downloading and self-driving cars and elon city on mars and then beaming back to i don't know um have sex with digital children or, or whatever it is these people like whatever that kind of ds9 style end game of that worldview is it's disgusting and i don't want it um
1: that's, that's just side note the completely fucked up thing about tomorrowland
2: but that's fucking classic disney isn't it um yes uh, these you watch after the kind of um after the normalization of trans rights the Peter rights will come back around again. They tried it in the seventies and it didn't work. Um, but that's been, I have no idea why the sexualization of children is part of that kind of Eddie Bernays style improvement of Western culture, mm-hmm. but it is, and it's coming back around. And yes, yeah, so it's it's nice that George Clooney had an early teenage girlfriend in a Disney film. That, film, that makes complete sense. at um, uh, this, I and maybe it's just that, that um bloodline's divine right of kings thing because uh, you know um you know with you know filet mignon like that steak is actually little boy steak like mignon is that <laughs> is a french word for a boy that you fuck right so uh that idea if you look at uh, at the sort of creepy origins of peter pan and how um that's written by a pedophile to to impress and groom his friends little girl who is you know Wendy is based on so you have that over the top like Tinkerbell is everywhere in Disneyland so Peter Pan is this kind of infrastructure and so that idea almost predates the shadow state it was in the heads of the likes of Eddie Bernays again son of um well not son um he has that double connection to Freud uh Freud was his uncle and there's like a brother-in-law weird connection anyway double connection to Freud um so in his head he believed that culture would be improved by obviously removing repressions on sexuality um and he kind of embedded that as a that's part of the the sort of manipulation of 20th century american culture which is why you have books that actually aren't that good like catcher in the rye mandated at a school level and that's a pedo book as well um but I, i don't understand why the sexualization of children is something that happens in this positive world, like the, the world that they're shooting for, but it nevertheless it is shot through with everything and and Disney in particular. Like it um Tinkerbell. <laughs> Whenever you see Tinkerbell, just think of uh Peter Pan, which is obviously, you know, an immortal boy. Um and it, this story was written by a pedophile to groom a little girl. Yeah. Now we need to find a positive spot to end on because yeah, well, that's other, not a good one. <laughs> the
1: other um the, the point I keep coming back to 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 rewind to um oh. Forbes's book again is that we mistake left-wing agendas in sci-fi sometimes for just the aristocracy of being able to do what they want. Yeah. So they um and for me for some reason I land on do you remember the pilot for um Madman where you see him just screwing the hippie and smoking weed and whatever. And then he goes home to his wife. And it's the patriarch can do whatever he wants.
2: Yes. and uh, This is this is the world that... Um, and that's not left or right. I mean, especially over the 20th century, you see them sort of split testing which one's going to work the best. Because they're neither left nor right. Like when, when the queen says she's above that... She really is she is absolutely above something as petty as whether or as how much um tax a dentist should pay because her face is on the fucking money like she does, <laughs> she absolutely is above this she would prefer it if maybe there were a few of us around, and her and her husband would like to eat or have sex with um, whoever they want because that's their right, and that you see, and people mistake um. Overly educated Westerners mistake that for a right wing ideology because they typically don't like it. But it's not. Like, um it's it's just it's there in the left as well. I mean um it's not like Hillary Clinton doesn't have her lovers. Like come on. not that she's left. There is no left. I mean, you know
1: <laughs> Yeah. There's that line that caught people in um Ultron, Age of Ultron, where Tony Stark goes, Oh and I'll bring back Prima Nocta. Yes. Just as a joke. Yeah, that
2: fi- that film That's is a disappointment. Mm.
1: Oh my god,
2: that film is. Uh, it's it's sort of sad to see this happen. I mean, maybe not. Maybe I just have. Uh, maybe I expect better of our superheroes in that Grant Morrison sense, um, mm. because Superman was used manipulatively. In, in quite a positive way like he fought the nazis and he fought kkk and what have you it was again the 20th century's, particularly in america's stories of, of using culture to to build culture um, and and this one was normalizing intervention like lionizing intervention in ukraine and and their version of it was there was a very missed opportunity to um, explore the implications of AI in that sort of Elon Musk bootloader sense mm-hmm. and they didn't it was just some kind of comic villain because that was that was beside the point the point was to embed that it's it's a good thing and the locals are happy when uh, essentially an aircraft carrier pulls up uh, beside Ukraine like that's yeah it was disappointing um, usually they're just uh, uh, identical like I don't I had to make sure I'd seen the film before it, because they, they blend into each other for me, and I don't care. Um, I had to kind of make sure. Like, I, I think I've probably missed one of the Iron Men, because he's in all of them, and I don't know. Um,
1: the three was not, that three was Shane Black. It was a bit more, I like Shane Black. I
2: can't remember. Like, I, that's probably the one I haven't seen. Yeah. And um, we discussed, like, the only one that I thought was is worth kind of going, hmm, well, that's not true. Um. Uh, about a
1: third of Thor
2: is worth thinking about, but then otherwise, um, that's Captain America sequel is mm. very interesting. Well,
1: that's just Operation Paperclip.
2: Yeah. Um percent And that is a that's a Telling Tales out of school film. Mm. Yeah, the that is there is a uh, a breakaway Nazi fascist component to um American civilization in the 20th century. Like that is it's saying it as clearly as 2001 said there are ruins on other planets um and that is and and the realization of that is is somehow involved in um the origin of mankind like it's it's like that is in an open and shut tales out of school film in a way that tomorrowland it's just kind of like i don't know it's like seeing the elite spare bedroom like it's messy and there's things in there they maybe don't want you to see and you know there's a there's a dead child on the bed um like yeah (laughs) uh so you you kind of get a a snapshot inside their crazy mind rather than having a um having an open and shut i am telling you something now um Mm -hmm. because it's like again we've now gotten to the point where it's normal for them and to be fair in, in hollywood i mean how many more um like, former child actors need to die of drug overdoses, ones that sort have of, sort of said, by the way, um, from the age of eight, every casting I went to, I was fucked, um, before we realized that Hollywood is, it is run by people who not only are pedophiles, but they would really like this to be normal, and even if it isn't, they're gonna keep doing it, because they'll get away with it. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's weird that we, that we have culture generation coming from that. Uh, well, mainstream culture generation, it's, its well, when I say it's weird, it does appear to be part of that at least mid-20th century plan of um, sexualizing culture or removing repression. Uh, there's an article, so, you know, Joe Atwill, who does the Caesar's Messiah stuff, which is quite good. On his blog, there's an article about, like, he goes into the J.D. Salinger stuff um, because... There was a really good Huffington Post article that says at some stage we have to talk about the fact two years after his death that 75% of his characters were under 21, half of them were under 12 Um, and then they kind of go through big chunks of um, Catcher in the Rye and uh, like it's essentially so the, the narrator's essentially in love with his 10-year-old sister, and and some of the climax scenes quite clearly can be read um, that she's naked when they're dancing, and uh, all the like, it's it's fairly extreme, and someone actually, because I read it, I mean, obviously I didn't go to, I went to an Australian school, so I never read Catcher in the Rye until my early 20s when I realized, it's referenced all the time in American culture, like oh, this yeah. is that, the book that they have to read because they all have to read it. And I'm like, oh, I should probably read this because maybe it's good. And it isn't. And, um,
1: yeah.
2: and it's been on the curriculum for decades and it's one of those, in that Eddie Bernays way, um, or in that Walt Disney way, this normalization of, in their heads, what, what I think it is, is in their heads, They had that sort of Freudian very clumsy view of sexuality and and psychosis and how repression is um, is at the root of all kind of um, psychic dysfunctioning so I, I kind of think I hope rather than the fact that it turns out we've been run by pedophiles for centuries I hope that in their heads they are attempting to do something noble which is like well let's see what we can do to kind of shift some of the repression in culture and and see if that and, and because clearly in our model that will contribute to an improved culture and that's kind of what i hope they're doing but the the sort of the outcome is that you you now have unthinking pedophile relationships in uh, in tomorrowland like so a sort of a century later we have what we have, and it's weird, and and I don't care for it.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, I get into it in one of the posts that I haven't finished yet.
2: Yeah, that's that's the um, that's the sort of space spacefaring Kurzweil dream, like a a sort of eight year old digital girlfriend. Um, and you kind of beam yourselves into Google cars on Elon City and Mars, and sort of beam back here, and it's it's absurd. <laughs> Yeah.
1: I prefer the um more the culture universe. Have you read any of those books.
2: No, I don't think so.
1: The Union Bank, where it's benevolent AIs and eternal humanity and um basically
2: Oh yeah, you were describing yeah, uh, you're describing it in one of the posts. Um no I haven't. I'm I'm still shooting for a kind of modified firefly universe. Um I, I mean, we discuss it, like, funnily enough, speaking of implications, or or taking a worldview to its inevitable implications, I just thought it was my crazy nonsense that led me in the, what I've glibly called space shamanism direction as an actual worldview. Like, I, I think that best describes reality on a macro basis. And then Pete Carroll brings out, his latest book Epoch and he's at the same spot so it's obviously taking chaos magic to its inevitable conclusion you end up with a a, a blended metaphysics physics view of a um, non-material universe that has extra-dimensional components to it and the story is very very long so that's the kind of space shamanism which I I think you're in broad agreement with that as a kind of like here is what I think is going on in the universe um and so i kind of like to me that's more important the to sort of to prove out the consciousness component of reality rather than how and when we'll end up in a spaceship like it would be super nice but i i i think mankind is how to describe this right i think it's a more important step in mankind's journey to um realize that to such an extent that that can be explored not just um you know with entheogens but that can be explored um via science and technology uh and so i kind of have uh, i mean it's not going to happen the thing is uh even though at the edge of bo- well of biology and physics and everywhere we've sort of reached the end of materialism's usefulness um the sort of silicon valley crowd is really going to sweat that asset they are really really going to um, like they will have shitty spaceships, and they will be taking, uh, you know, radiation pills, and they will get themselves to Mars. In, and so, I've kind of got a modified fly, Firefly thing going on. So, if Firefly's um, implied Taoism, I mean, Joss is uh, an atheist, which is disappointing. Um, but if if the sort of implied Taoism underneath Firefly. Were a bit less implied and a bit more obvious. Um, that would be my universe, and I can kind of live on the edges of it. And they can go and do their technocratic Tomorrowland robot child fucking nonsense.
1: Well, yeah, I I have. I figured no one listens to this point, so I can just tell you all my secrets. Yeah, go for um, it. My long game is to trap the rich into a simulation. There you go. Um, terrible. But it's all about the breakaway civilization. Um, Ascension, which was like a sci-fi miniseries.
2: No. All right.
1: The best and brightest in a... Uh, they, they think they're going off to colonize another star system, but the whole spaceship is a simulation, right? Fair
2: enough. Nice
1: right. one. So we send them to spaceships, and then we just live our lives.
2: Well, a- that's the thing. Yeah, like if they want to leave, I'll, you know, if they want to leave tomorrow, I'll help them pack. That's great, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: what I'm saying. As long yeah. as they don't take all of this shit with them. Well, they fun fund their escape, right?
2: Yes, they are absolutely harvesting the world to do so. But, and this kind of comes back to almost a faith-based position, like the space shamanism. And funnily enough, to circle it all the way back to Jurassic Park, life yeah. finds a way. Yes. And so they can harvest the shit uh, as long as it's not a total harvest,
1: mm.
2: and as long as they leave now, mm-hmm. that is best case for me. Because <laughs> yeah. it will it will find a way. You you end up we we, we underestimate a biodiverse bounce back um, from these sort of events, and, and Chernobyl is a good example of it. But um, yeah,
1: mm-hmm. well, their their entire materialistic escape plan is to get from the planet. To start over, to have all their toys and leave it to where it's the breaking with the more religious, spiritual narrative of progressing as a person.
2: Yeah, of so you can either
1: mental universe.
2: You can either use a propulsion engine to see an additional point zero 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 one of the universe, or you can. Um, deep in your engagement with the whole thing uh and they're going off in the propulsion thing thinking that's the future and in and it is a future like that will happen but it's not what we're for um and i just think it will be the most hilarious thing if we do it like if if some variant of red planet plays out and uh, in these sort of 250 million year old ruins elon and his friends encounter something that Melts materialism like so they've just, you know, Kurzweil's just uploaded himself to whatever mutant version one um, Transhumanist mannequin It is and he's just done that and he's killed his meat suit and then it turns out (laughs) Oh, you had all of that wrong Uh, Immortality is achieved this way (laughs) Mm. Um, And I think in some respects that will happen although it doesn't seem to have modified. I mean Elon knows that there's stuff around doesn't seem to have modified his belief system much, I guess. Un- until you encounter it, you can sort of force it back into a materialist model.
1: Well, at the end of um the operative.
2: Which one was that again?
1: That's the they go looking for the weird shit in um Afghanistan.
2: Oh yeah yeah yeah. Sorry.
1: Oh, that's on my own list. God, I haven't.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Vimana.
1: Yeah. He just gets that that recurring um motif of the. The enlightened person touching, you know, awakening the chakra. Yeah. That um is in as well. <laughs> that's how he sees the um being dimension. Yes, that's a much more positive thing to end on, I think.
2: I think so. Immortality again.
1: Immortality, a richer universe in every sense, and striving for you know effect- meaning and all that. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's been another fascinating chat, and I really can't wait to read your book
2: yeah I can't wait for people to read it either it's uh it's been in my head for too long.
1: I know that feeling
2: mm. all right well um yeah I will go and take more painkillers and uh and uh and get on with things nice one
1: all right thank you guys. cool
2: you're
0: welcome see ya
1: Greetings true fans and insomniacs. Welcome also to new initiates of the Asteroid Death Cult, which is not a real thing that exists in the world other than being humanity itself over time, because we own the Anthropocene. Tell your friends. If in the future you would like to be able to listen to podcasts the very second they drop on the internet to support all my works and get them all early for like two dollars a month or something. You can go to patreoncom Mikey. That's M1K3Y. Patreon is called Dark Extropian Musings because that's what I do. Okay, thanks for listening. And um, sorry if I woke you. And good night. Goodbye. See you next time, space cowboys.